Thank you for listening to the podcast of Bible Baptist Church. Please visit our website at www.southbaybbc.org for more information. Today's message is centered around the subject of hope. Hope. Our world seems like it's spinning off of its axis. You wake up in the morning, there's something new happening every day. There's some who say, I don't pay attention to the news. The news makes me nervous. The news makes me upset. I'd rather just get on with my daily life. But that doesn't stop the news from happening. There are wars in Israel. There's a war in the Ukraine. There's war and combat on the African continent. And there are a bunch of social issues that are attacking us here in America. So what that does, it tends to shatter and shake the hope of men and women alike. Unbelievers put their hope in different things. They may put their hope in philosophy, they'll put their hope in opinion, they'll put their hope in the wisdom and guidance of their parents, professors, teachers, neighbors, siblings. While the Christian, we put our hope in the hand of God. To define our terms, uh, hope is, from the world's perspective, the desire for certain things to happen. The desire for certain things to happen. So in the world, we hope when we're in school to get passing grades. Or we may hope that the job interview went well. We may hope for world peace. And that hope is predicated upon a teacher, a diplomat, or the job interviewer. For the Christian, our hope is based on an expectation in God to keep his promises. We walk by faith, not by sight. Our hope is in the living God who brought Jesus Christ from the grave. Our opening text was written by King David. In verses uh, 9 and 10 of Psalm 9, David says, The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. And they that know thy name, the name of God, will put their trust in thee. For thou, for you, Lord, hast not forsaken them that seek thee. Everyone in this room who knows Christ as Lord and Savior has the same testimony as David. He knows that God, she knows that God will not, has not, cannot forsake us because that is a promise that he made to us. So you say, preacher, why David? Well, David was a shepherd. David was a warrior. He was a musician. David was a poet. David was a prophet. Ultimately, David was a king. But David also is a damaged man. He's damaged by sin. David was a liar. David was a womanizer. David was a cheat. David was a murderer. But he wrote some of the most beautiful poetry that the world has ever known. How 
was this damaged soul able to write such magnificent poetry? How was he able to have the heart of God, even though he was a sinner on the most vilest levels? Because David, even though his character was weak, he put his faith and his confidence and his trust and his hope in the living God. And God was faithful, and God was true to his promise that if you repent and believe, I will be your father, you will be my son. David repented of his sins, put his faith and confidence in God, in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he was strengthened. And his sins were forgiven, and he was able to tell us from experience that the Lord hath not forsaken them that seek me. We can trust the words of God as he used David as a prophet to emphasize this point of hope. David was all those things, prophet, priest, and king. He was all those things. But 3,000 years later, we can look back at his testimony. We can look back at his example and apply it to what we go through in our daily lives. The old hymn says, my hope is built on nothing less but Jesus Christ and his righteousness. My hope is not built on the professors that I knew in college. My hope is not built on the training instructors that I had in the military. My hope is not built on the training officer that I knew in law enforcement. My hope is not even built on the teachings from my mother and my father. My hope is built on the eternal foundation of Jesus Christ, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He has a hope a foundation that is firm. He has a hope, a foundation that you can depend on. He has a hope and a foundation that you can trust thoroughly. We're going to look at three points today briefly. First, Jesus is the only hope in the world. Secondly, Jesus is the only hope of the family. Thirdly, Jesus is the only hope for you. First, Jesus is the only hope of the world. If you would, please turn to John chapter 3, verse 17. John chapter 3, verse 17. Jesus is the only hope of the world. Jesus is the only hope of the family. And Jesus is the only hope for you. John chapter 3, verse 17. The apostle John is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he tells us the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 3, verse 17. Some of you may have it memorized already. The Bible says, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him, through Jesus Christ, might be saved. Powerful verse. Tells us a lot of things. Tells us about God's love for you. Tells us about God's recognition that the world needs salvation. Right now, the world feels like it's on its ear. We came out of a pandemic. We have uh, men playing women's sports. We have men identifying as women. We have families being torn apart. We see uh, the definition of marriage has been changed, no longer between a man and a woman. And God 
instituted marriage. First time we see the word husband is in Genesis. So we know that marriage came from God himself, but the very definition by the world, by unbelievers, by those who hate God and love chaos and disorder, they've changed the definition, many definitions in our world today, and it throws our world into chaos. However, the Bible says that God sent not his son Jesus into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So even though the world deserves judgment, God still determines and hopes that many will turn from sin and give their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. That vast emptiness that the world tries to fill with alcohol, drugs, sex outside of marriage, exercise, entertainment, it doesn't fill that void. It's still that emptiness inside. For those of you who were in the world, you remember going out on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and repeating it week after week, attempting to fill that emptiness inside. And on Monday morning, that void was still there. Sometimes we'll use education to fill that emptiness. I'll study for six hours a day. I'll study for seven hours a day. I'll spend a lot of time in the library. Maybe that'll give me a sense of fulfillment. Doesn't do the job. I'll play a lot of video games. I'll watch movies. I'll watch films. I'll look at television. I'll listen to music. I'll surf the web. I'll, I'll, I'll be on TikTok and Instagram for hours. Still doesn't feel, fill the void or the emptiness inside. And God sees it all. He sees it all. He knows what we do from beginning to end. And he knows that his creation needs salvation. So he sends Jesus into the world. The world sees these events and actions that I'm talking about differently. The world thinks that I can reform myself, that December 31st is coming around, so I'll make some resolutions for January 1st. And I'm going to work out more, Brother Lemons. I'm going to eat more yogurt, put those potato chips away. I want to punch some more holes in my belt so the belt will get tighter. I'll hold my breath in, straighten my back, work on my posture. I'll read more. I'll get a gym membership. I'll go to church more. I'll do all those things. That's what the world wants to do. And that'll last about 15 days. And just like a rubber band, it goes back to its original shape. Change only comes through a personal relationship with God. And that's the God of the Bible. If a person's not an atheist or an agnostic, Everyone you talk to outside of those groups will say, I believe in God. There are people in this room today who say, I believe in God. The question is, who is this God that you believe in? Is it the God of the Bible? Or is it the God of your own creation? Is it the God that allows you to sin? Is it the God that allows you to look at pornography? Is it the God that allows you to uh, uh, waste your time uh, on social media, who is this God? 
Many people create their own religion, a God that they're comfortable with. I don't need to go to church on Sunday. I can go down to Hermosa Beach and watch the sun rise in the morning. That, that, that's my church. That's my relationship with God. Or I can go out to Malibu and I can walk through the hills and look at the coyotes and the bears and enjoy God's presence. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We need to be with the body of Christ. We need to be through those doors every time those doors open up. It's not about this. This is not the church. The church are these people sitting beside you. We need to be in the presence of those who have trusted Jesus Christ. We need to be in the presence of those whose lives have been transformed by Jesus Christ. We need to be in the presence of those who hear the voice of Jesus Christ. And hopefully one who has not trusted Christ, one who has not heard his voice, one who does not know him as Savior, will repent and believe on him who was dead and God brought him out of the grave so that you could have eternal life. So Jesus is the only hope of the world. The world was turned upside down before. When I was 13 years old, John Kennedy, President of the United States, was assassinated. When I was, when I was 15 years old, Malcolm X was assassinated. When I was 18 years old, Martin Luther King was assassinated. And later that year, Robert Kennedy was assassinated. So if you see a pattern here, my teenage years and my 20s were marked by political assassination, riots, and social disorder. In 1968, an epidemic broke out, flu, and over a million people around the world died, similar to what we experienced with COVID. And in that same year, when I was 18, riots broke out all over the country in all the major cities. The Vietnam War escalated in 1968, and it just went on and on and on and on. That's when I came of age as a teenager and a young man in my 20s. So I've seen this before. I've, I've been in this movie before, except this one is different. There's something different about what's going on post-pandemic. The world is indoctrinating our children. And it just didn't start in 2010. 70 years ago, our colleges were infiltrated with a liberal progressive philosophy. And what that means essentially is that you don't have to trust the Bible, you don't have to trust the Word of God. So now you're at a place where a university like Yale University, which was originally a seminary for, for preachers, Yale University has a uh, head of the religion department who doesn't believe God exists. I'll say that again. The head of the religion department does not believe that God exists. And nobody's upset about that. And the same holds true for Harvard, Princeton, Rutgers, and all the other Ivy League schools, and some of these uh, schools on the West Coast also. That's the world that we live in. That's the world that we live in. And that's the world that indoctrinates and brainwashes our young people. And then what happens? That indoctrination started 70 years ago. And those kids who were in college 70 years ago grew up, and they had children. 
Now those children are where? Teaching elementary school, teaching high school, and teaching college. So it's a long game that Satan practices. He infiltrates education, indoctrinates, brainwashes. Now we look at a world that we live in where all of our major institutions have been indoctrinated. Everyone, the military, you have a guy standing up in front of you wearing a dress and a uniform with his hair pulled back identifying as a woman and a Navy officer. And I was an Army guy. I mean, we didn't deal with that. Religion. You got priests, pastors, preachers, never born again, standing up preaching poems, preaching philosophy, indoctrinating, brainwashing. Everything but the word of God, everything they talk about except Christ, death, burial, and resurrection. In our colleges, just the last week, after the terrorist group Hamas attacked Jews in Israel and killed over a thousand men, women, and children and took others uh, into captivity, do our college students protest the fact that a terrorist group murdered men, women, and children in their beds? They take to the street and they protest. And who do they protest against? God's people. They protest against the Jews. They protest against Israel. And they support the Palestinians. And they support the terrorists. We want the land back from the river to the sea. These folks are so brainwashed that they don't even know what the phrase means. There was one young lady interviewed on television. Uh, so you want the land back from the river to the sea, yes? Yeah, I want it back from the river to the sea. Well, what's the name of the river? She got that blank look on her face. What's the name of the river? It's the Jordan. Amen. Where John Baptist did his work. So all that territory from Jordan to the Mediterranean Sea, that's what these young folk are out on the street protesting that they want to be given back to, uh, given to the Palestinians. They never owned it to begin with. So it was given to the Jews by God. But the point is, is that our young people don't know that. Why? Because they've been indoctrinated and brainwashed. What's the indoctrination? That if you're skin or you're a person of color, then you're a victim. Even in the Philippines, you're a victim. Remember, the United States even went to the Philippines and had a war over there. I've never been a victim. Never saw myself as a victim even before I came to Christ. I, I don't buy into that philosophy and I refuse to uh, be brainwashed along those lines. But that's what's happening with the indoctrination of our children. So all that diversity, equity, inclusion that's being taught in our college classrooms, all that means is that folks are a victim and white supremacy is the problem. And who sits in the background and laughs? Satan. Because he's all about the division of men and women from Christ. So if he can divide us, then that keeps us from thinking about the gift of salvation offered by God through Jesus Christ. That's what the big picture is. 
Ephesians chapter 6 tells us that we're engaged in spiritual warfare. But if you're not a Christian or a believer in the book, you don't, you don't believe it. We're indoctrinated to the point where we think that our enemy is our fellow man. But we're all in the same spiritual boat together. Where God sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that through him, the world might be saved. The Bible tells us clearly that God is no respecter of persons. God's mildly interested if you're from Baltimore, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seoul, Manila. He doesn't care. All he cares about is the time that you put your faith and your confidence in his son, Jesus Christ. Why does he care about that? Because he sent his son to take your place on the cross of Calvary. The big picture. For God so loved the world, what did he do? He sent his only begotten son. Why? That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's the big picture. What? Is it that simple? Yes, it's that simple. Because sin and death came into the world because of Adam and Eve's disobedience. That sin nature passed on to you, and on to you, and on to you, and on to me. And the only way that sin nature can be corralled is through the precious blood that Christ shed on the cross at Calvary. Devil's working overtime today. <laughs> Amen. Amen. But the world wants to separate us. The world wants us to see the differences in Tagalog and Spanish and French and in Korean. It wants to separate us in the food we eat, the music we listen to. It wants to drive that wedge in between us to keep our minds off the salvation that's available to all through the finished and completed work of Jesus Christ. So the world attacks Jesus. God wants to save the world. God's not willing that any should perish. God doesn't send people to hell. People go to hell because they reject the word of God. People go to hell because they reject Jesus Christ. God has so much love for the world that a rot-gut sinner can turn from sin and trust Jesus Christ the moment before he or she dies and have a place in heaven. That's how much God loves the sinner. But the world hates God, and the world hates Jesus Christ. But God's love is immense. God's love is immense. And there's not enough room to contain the love of God. So our world is topsy-turvy, again. But that doesn't mean it's all over. God could very well withhold his judgment another 10, 20, 30, 40 years. He could very well do that. It's up to him. Or he could rain down justice today. And justice will rain down. You can't kill over 50 million children by abortion, and God will forgive that sin. God will judge those who hate the children. God will judge the church, those who have the truth in the Bible, but rather have a rock and roll band up here than sing praises to God with a cappella voices. I was in a church and 
had a drummer and they had a lead guitar, you know, and had a singer and all that stuff, just rocking out. And then, then the fog rolled in, you know, the fog machine. <laughs> I couldn't imagine. <laughs> the apostles, after they had uh, Holy Communion and they went off to the uh, uh, off uh, to the Mount of Olives to sing a hymn. I can't imagine them rocking out, you know, with a, with a guitar and bongo drummer and all that stuff. They just sang sweet, precious hymns to God. But the world has infiltrated all of our institutions. Religion is not protected either. We've been infiltrated. Just told you about the rock and roll bands and the goofy messages that they come across as poems our education system, our military. It's all been infiltrated, the long game. But God saw it coming. God wasn't caught by surprise. God knows uh, the heart of man. And God provided the solution. And the only hope for the world is Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the only hope of the world. He's also the only hope of the family. John chapter 4 verse 49. John chapter 4, verse 49. And we're going to read down to verse 53. First point, Jesus is, is the only hope of the world. Jesus is the only hope of the family. John chapter 4, verse 49. The Bible says in verse 49, the nobleman saith unto him, Sir, Come ere my child die. Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Verse 52. Then inquired he of them the word, the hour, when he began to amend. And they said unto him yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Verse 53, so the father knew that it was at the same hour in the which Jesus said unto him, thy son liveth, and himself believed, and his whole house. And himself believed, and his whole house. Jesus is the only hope of the family. Here we have a nobleman. He's got money. He has influence. He has a quality of life that we would envy uh, to have if we were interested. He's got a great reputation. He's got servants. He probably had the best doctors uh, in Galilee come by and examine his son. But the Bible says that his son, in verse 47, at the end of the verse, was at the point of death. So no matter how much money the nobleman had, no matter how many doctors came through the house, no, many, no matter how much you know, he wailed and cried out, for a healing. The child was still at the point of death. But then the nobleman heard that Jesus had come out of Jerusalem and that Jesus was in Galilee. And everybody knew Jesus' reputation. People were coming from far and wide to be healed by Christ. They knew about the miracles that he performed. So here's a fellow in Galilee that heard, oh, Jesus has come back to Galilee. Let me go talk to him. So he went, he found Jesus, uh, the rest of the story is there. The bottom line is that uh, the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken with him. 
the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken with him. What was the word? Go thy way. Thy son liveth. So the man left, and he, before he could get home, the servant said, uh, the fever broke. The child will live. The father did the math, and he realized that the same time that Jesus told him, the same hour that Jesus told him, thy son liveth, was the same hour that the fever broke and the child lived. Praise God. This made an impression on this fellow. What happened? He believed. Believed what? That Christ is the Christ. That Jesus is the Messiah. That he is who he said he is. And not only did the nobleman believe, but his whole house said, hallelujah. <laughs> what time do we have to be in church on Sunday? Do they have a Wednesday night meeting? Do they knock on doors on Saturday? Do you have any tracks I can pass out? Because I believe that Christ is the Christ. An entire family was saved. An entire household because of Jesus. There's so many counselors that tell us how to raise our children. And they aren't Bible-believing Christians. It's not Bible-based counseling. And there are all kind of folks on the internet, even people within our own households. You know, I'm a grandfather. Well, you know, when you were small, I didn't do that. <laughs> I learned how not to say that <laughs> with my four grandchildren. I just keep my mouth shut and let my daughter raise her children. But then there are others who say, yeah, I'm going to tell you how how to raise uh, your kids because I raised seven. So I, so I know how to do it. Yeah, okay. And sometimes that doesn't work out well. Other times it may. But the, the element that's consistent is that when Jesus is involved, he is the hope of the family. We talked about indoctrination. We talked about changing definitions of words. The family is under attack. Maybe you don't keep up with the news. I'll keep up on the news for you. The family is under attack. And it just didn't start yesterday. It started almost 50 years ago, where fathers weren't allowed to stay in the home with the family if the family collected welfare. So if the family got welfare support, then the father could not be in the house. That was the government regulation. So if a social worker came by to check on what the mother was doing with the children and the dad was in the house, then the social worker would recommend that the money, the check, would be cut off, leaving the mom with the children when uh, that was the time when welfare was, was actually needed. Then it, then it got abused and turned into a racket and all that sort of thing. But when it first came out, the idea was to support families who were living below the poverty level. But if that father was in the house, all that support was cut off. That started 50 years ago. Now we fast forward through time and we have three or four generations of people who are still on that, on that God-forsaken system and the fathers no longer live in the house. In some communities, there are uh, a number of children that have been created by uh, daddies, but not fathers. 
It's a difference. Fathers see it through to the end. Fathers stand there in the gap for their wives and for their children. Fathers do what it takes to put food on the table, keep a roof over their head. Fathers take care of their wives, they take care of their children, they take care of their grandchildren. The baby daddies, as they're called in popular jargon, they just spread their seed around. There was one celebrity, he's got 12 children. 12 children. And there were two others in the same article, uh, celebrities, had eight children, the other one had seven. And like five different mothers. Each one had five different mothers for all of their children. What's that do for that child when that child begins to grow and mature, start to live their own lives? Somebody gonna make fun of them in school? Do they, will they have their own uh, sense of self-awareness? Or are they gonna be psychological and emotional wrecks because their home life wasn't a stable, Bible-based home to grow up in? These men, they make a lot of money, they spread their seed around, but they don't think about the consequences of sin. And it's not only sexual sin. We don't think about humans in general, the consequences of sin. And it's not like one sin is worse than another. Some folks will say, well, homosexuality is bad, but drinking alcohol is not. When God looks at the, at the table, he's looking at sin. He's looking at sin. And homosexuality is a sin, but then drunkenness is a sin also. Bitterness is a sin. Anger is a sin also. Not trusting Christ is a sin. Rejecting Christ is a sin. Accepting the philosophy of the world, a sin. So God sees sin as one entity that needed one solution. The solution for sin is in the hope that Jesus Christ presents. If we're walking through Griffith Park and all of a sudden a mountain lion jumps up, Brother Price, and we're in his territory, and mountain lion's not going to roll over on his back and ask you to pat his stomach. <laughs> there are going to be some issues, some consequences and ramifications if, if you get in that mountain lion's way. Why is that? Because sin and death came into the world. The prophets tell us that there will be a time where the lion lays down with the lamb. Amen? However, if the lamb lays down with the lion, Brother Lemons, then the lion's going to have lamb chops, right? <laughs> so we know that sin has consequences. But then God provided the remedy for sin. And the remedy for sin is the blood of Jesus Christ. A lost person will say, well, you have a very bloody God. Your God demands human sacrifice. No, no. Because God himself became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory, the glory of God. So it was God who was on the cross at Calvary. It wasn't John the Baptist. It wasn't Peter. It wasn't Paul. It wasn't some uh, sinful man who was born in, in Bethany. 
It was God himself who took on the flesh of man. What love. And he allowed himself to die that precious death, that, that painful death on the cross, so that all of your sins could be forgiven. So God sent Jesus as the only hope uh, for the family. So we find that uh, Jesus is the only hope of the world. Jesus is the only hope of the family. Thirdly and finally, Jesus is the only hope for you. Jesus is the only hope for you. Now, if there was a time in your life where you know that each and every one of your sins is forgiven and that you turned from your sin and you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and you knew that your burdens flew away, praise God, hallelujah, born again. But if there was something that you did and you claim that as salvation, then examine yourself, the Bible says, to make sure you're in the faith. I had a false conversion. I came forward during the invitation. That same night, it was Holy Communion. I took the communion, thought it was the right thing to do. Came forward during the invitation, went upstairs, got uh, interviewed by a fellow in the, uh, in the uh, interview room. And then uh, he asked me if, uh, if uh, I knew I was saved. And I said, uh, is, is this another commitment? I remember saying those words. Is this another commitment? And that's how I saw taking Holy Communion. Is this another commitment? And he said, yes. And that locked me in to my testimony for eight years. I thought I was saved because I had made a commitment through taking communion, and I made a commitment to this fellow in the inquiry room. Yes. What's the problem with that? No Jesus. No Jesus. I went through a religious rite, taking Holy Communion. I took steps by walking down the aisle. I took action. But I had never trusted Christ. N difference. And I was religious. Black suit, white shirt, black tie, black Bible, in church every time the doors were open. My first job was usher, and I was an usher. But then I moved up through the ranks, went to seminary, got my doctorate, the whole bit. Started preaching, started conducting weddings, funerals, all that. Lost as lost could be. Wearing a Christian mask on Sunday. And by the time I walked out the door, got in my car and turned the ignition on, the mask came off. Religious, but very lost. Then about eight years into this facade, about eight years into this masquerade, pastor walked up to me and said, I don't believe you're saved, Rod. <laughs> he saw right through it. it. Took a while, but you know, God showed him. He says, I don't believe you're saved. So I fought spiritually, uh, blaming God, blaming racism, blaming everything but my, myself <laughs> for three and a half years. And then one night, after many, many counseling sessions, a brother sat me down, opened the Bible up, and turned to Romans chapter 5, verse 8, and said, but God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That word, after all the Bible I had heard over that three and a half year sermon, period, all the messages I heard, I just hardened my heart, stiffened my neck, and got colder and colder toward God. But that night, was my night of salvation. 
because Romans 5.8 pierced my soul. I saw my need for the Savior, I trusted the Savior, and I haven't looked back since. That's the hope that God gives us through Jesus Christ. God did not give up on me. He could have let me slip into eternity at any moment without Christ, and I'd be in hell this very moment. But because Jesus is the only hope for you, because Jesus was the only hope for me, that word in Romans 5.8 pierced my very soul, Shri, pierced my very soul. I repented and trusted him. It's simple. I made it hard. I wanted to be, I wanted to have a part in my salvation. There must be something I can do to please God. I can remember getting up one, one Sunday morning saying, I'm going to get saved today, Brother Price. I'm going to get saved today. God, God just smiled. Because I wanted to be a part of the process. I don't need to be a process, part of the process. All I need to do is just get out of the way. That's the process. Amen. There's nothing I can do with that cross. It's already been done. So that's what Jesus does. Jesus is the only hope for you. And he makes it so clear. He makes it so plain. In John chapter 10, verse 9, if you want to turn with me, you can, but uh, we're getting close to that hour. In John chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus said, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. I don't have to go any further than that. Jesus said, I am the door. By me, if any man uh, enter in, he shall be saved. Over in John chapter 14, verse 6, familiar passage, Jesus said, I am the way. First, he tells us he's the door. Secondly, he tells us I am the way. Then when he's sitting with the, the Samaritan woman at the well, he tells her that I am the Christ. Woo! Glory! <laughs> Hallelujah. I am the Christ. Oh, you hear what I just said? God said, I am the anointed one. She got excited. Woo! I got to go in town and tell everybody he's here. And that's what she did. And then they all came out to meet the Christ. So yeah, Jesus is very direct. I am the door. That's the door. What's the door do? It leads you. I am the way. What's the way do? It shows you. I am the Christ. What does he do? He saves you. Amen. Jesus is the only hope of the world. Jesus is the only hope of the family. Jesus is the only hope for you. What will you do with Jesus today?